Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Impact of Influence. The tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths that they are linked to. Hi there, friend. I am Matt Harris, co-host Seton Tucker right across from me. And, of course, before we tell you what this episode is all about, you can reach out to us, Hal. You can reach us on Facebook at Murdoch Podcast or on our website, which is MurdochPodcast.com. Now explain this episode. Right. So this is kind of a bonus episode. So if you are only want to hear about Murdoch stuff, then... You might want to just skip this one. Fair warning. Fair warning. Um, but there are some tie-ins. So I've been following this story since the early 90s about this uh, killer Pee-wee Gaskins. And what was interesting where the tie-in is that Dick Harputlian was the person who prosecuted Pee-wee Gaskins and sent him to death row. And there's also been some mention in some of the court documents related to Alec Murdoch. There was a gag order that Dick Carputlian filed uh, where he was upset that uh, Eric Bland uh, compared his client to Huey Gaskins. And there's a podcast featuring Jeff Keating all about Huey Gaskins and Dick Carputlian was the solicitor who sent Huey Gaskins to death row. Before we talk to Jeff, Here's part of the trailer from his podcast, Pee Wee Gaskins Was Not My Friend. A lot of them were stabbed, and the others were deteriorated so badly until there was not much left to look at. Pee Wee Gaskins killed more than a dozen people in South Carolina, including friends, co-workers, and family members. The age of his victims used to bother me. Especially the young girls. I found her skull back up a dirt road. Didn't bury her at all. He just killed whatever he wanted to when he wanted to. He was one of those people in this world who felt nothing for others. Great storytelling, great interviews, and Jeff Keating joins us now. Hi, Jeff. Good morning. Good morning. Good job on the podcast. Really cool. Thank you so much. Um, There's so many levels to it, but let's start with, you tell us, who was Pee Wee Gaskins? Well, Pee Wee Gaskins, after I've done my research and listening to these wonderful stories from Jim Beatty, who we'll get to soon, was a shade tree mechanic, was a trailer park kingpin, was a mass murderer, and a guy that you just didn't want to cross. We we had this discussion often with our creative team, and we feel it was kind of a pragmatic killer in some senses where if you you crossed him or broke one of his codes or did something that he felt was going to endanger his way of life, you were going to die. So I noticed you did not refer to him as a serial killer, and that's kind of a controversial thing. 
Is that right? I, we did it because based on some people that we talked to as far as, you know, uh, psychologists and definitions and stuff, mass murder seems to be a better fit for him than serial killer. Now, again, there's been some books written and some things, research on him that they would definitely call him that. So I'm not going to dispute their findings, but we would we would say mass murder. My team would. I was in college when I kind of first um, learned of this story. My husband is actually from the Florence area, so he was definitely tuned in. And he was put to death when I was in college, and it was a big news story in South Carolina at the time. I mean, there were protests. People actually, it almost seemed like a party atmosphere outside of the, the Dale House the night he was put to death. It was it was. Definitely big news. And I read Final Truth. I read that book. And I know that's kind of, we can talk about that in a, a little while. That was kind of very salacious book at the time. And I read it on the beach and actually had to put it down many times because it was so disturbing. It, it was big deal, uh, 1991, when he was put to death. But the story of Pee Wee Gaskins took many years and in, in, in many ways to form. And I'll, I'll go to the thing you said earlier, why he's not called a serial killer, what you talk about in the podcast is because he really didn't have a thing that he did. He didn't like shoot people in a car. Uh, he didn't only kill women. He, there wasn't a thing that you could follow, a thread that would say, this is the kind of people that were his victims, right? Explain that. Yeah. And, and again, you know, I'm not an expert on serial killers or mass murders, even myself, but just growing up and being a true crime guy, I mean, I always imagined serial killers were you know, hunters and very meticulous in their methodology. And as you just pointed out, Matt, sometimes the certain types of uh, people, age or gender that they would go after. Again, some people are going to have their own ideas on what a serial killer may be. I just don't think he kind of fits that mold, in my opinion. What number of victims people settled on? And we can explain why that number is disputed. It was said maybe between 100 and 110 we, in our kind of investigative understanding and research, narrowed it down to 14, if I'm not mistaken, 14 or 15, that we could confirm with some forensic stuff or police investigation, things of that nature. Those were really what we focused on. We didn't get into the mythology of him killing a lot of hitchhikers, you know, yeah. on uh, yeah, roads in South Carolina and other things like that. Yeah, that's, even cover that. that's what made him extra scary to some people. But if you just hear Correct. the actual Pee Wee Gaskin story, it did not need to be inflated to be scary. That's the crazy thing. We felt these 14 murders were enough. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's kind of go on the path. Uh, I know he was in reform school because he beat somebody with a hammer or something like that. When do we pinpoint his first murder. Well, again, that's going to be subject to debate. Right. We focused on one that was confirmed, which was Janice Kirby and Patricia Ann Allsbrook, which was in November of 1970. One was his niece, if I'm not mistaken, who would have been, I think it was Janice Kirby and then her friend. And he beat them to death. There's some speculation, again, that it was partly because their uh, drug abuse and he you know he, he was very uh, against that you know again there's some rumors that it might be that he was trying to sexually assault him which we didn't get into on our end but that was the first one that we really focused on was janice kirby and patricia and allsbrook well i noticed that it was he, he kind of had a little bit of a code because he 
buried his cousin somewhere else than where he buried the other female. Correct. That's absolutely right. And I think, you know, they ended up finding the one that was not buried, if I'm not mistaken, Seton, just, you know, maybe even out in the open, where the other one kind of had some type of burial, if you could call it that. Yeah, he threw, I think, the the non-cousin, didn't he throw her in a, a sewer or something like that? I mean, it was definitely oh, septic, just... Se- septic, septic tank, septic maybe? Tank, yeah. That's yeah. right. But you know what's weird? This code, we can stick with that storyline right now, because the code is obviously from a sick person's mind, and it was very yeah. inconsistent because his behavior, obviously, but he had this, I guess, protection of some kids. Explain how the code is, some of the, some of the things about the code. Well, and that's, you know, I'm still wrestling with that because, yeah, the, the code was really two things. It was kind of, you know, no jawing, which means don't talk about my business to anybody else, specifically to the cops. And two, just the way he was handled himself around younger people no profanity no drinking sometimes things like that but it it felt like it crossed the line sometimes like he would be partying with younger age kids um obviously there was some um sexual interaction with some of these younger women and stuff like that so this protective nature matt yes was it that or was it maybe just a way to lure these people in we'll never know but that was always a weird dichotomy to me Let's move to the guy, the man that was spending hours and hours with Pee Wee Gaskins. Introduce us to Jim. So Jim Beatty, what a what a wonderful man. Jim came across this story because he was friends with Pee Wee's attorney at the time and was given a writing assignment, I think basically to write like the life story of Pee Wee Gaskins. There was several people that were maybe auditioned or interviewed. Ultimately, Jim got to go visit Pee Wee in prison to get Pee Wee's okay, and then was given the assignment. And so over, I think it was basically about a year, he had 50 plus interviews sitting across from Pee Wee Gaskins, meeting some of his family members, helping out with some family transportation and delivery of gifts and things like that. So Definitely some intimate conversations. What I found really interesting about it was Jim grew up close to where Pee Wee grew up, but he you know, grew up with a loving household and just he, how he struggled with how Pee Wee was raised versus how he was raised. And maybe that is why he became what he became. And so I, I just kind of want to talk a little bit about his child, nat- Pee Wee's child. Nature versus nurture. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, that, that's a debate that's been going on, you know, for decades now. And, and so, again, we don't know what Pee Wee's upbringing is, but, but let's just assume it was bad. You know, I mean, there was definitely some beatings. I mean, there was talk about some, you know, potential torture and some real abuse. Jim saw his mother giving him some love later in life, but we don't know what that looked like with father figures and uncles and stuff early on. Jim, I could speak to specifically telling me that he came from a loving family. So I know that for for sure. But as you think about all these mass murders and serial killers over the years, you can't find many, if even one, that had a loving family, right? I mean, <laughs> right, they're yeah. almost yeah, really. yeah, exactly non-existent. Right. So uh, it, it tends to seem to think that that the nurture is a big part of it. Like, are you really just born a serial killer or mass murderer? I would think not. 
No. But I'm not a geneticist or you know, <laughs> know much about biology, but that would be my guess. Well, Jim Beatty is very interesting and very important to the whole podcast that your PB Caskins was not my friend podcast. He seems to be, the way I read it through the way you presented it was, Jim was trying to find humanity within Pee Wee Gaskins. I think that's fair to say, Matt. And did he find a good side in there? I think he found glimpses of it. I think he may have also fantasized about how those glimpses could have grown. I think he was hopeful that there was a side of Pee Wee that people had never seen before that he may have been able to uh, turn into down the line. But ultimately, I think we found that Pee Wee was just what we thought he was, a bad dude. In fact, he, one of the things that starts the author, Jim Beatty, to think that maybe there isn't this great side are a couple of things. One, when he asked Pee Wee, would you lie to me? What does he say? <laughs> half the time. <laughs> <laughs> and you just don't know which half is half. And he, it, it seems like you'll to me. Never know. It's, almost, it's almost funny. Like, what if he said that, it, that number is so perfect? You know, 10%. Okay, well, then most of the stuff you tell me is true. Yeah. Or what if he said 90%? And he's <laughs> like, okay, well, you're lying almost all the time. But 50%, that's like, that's such a calculated answer. I love it. Even 60-40, you're like, okay. Even 60-40, yeah. fine. You're leaning one way, absolutely. Yeah, So, and, and it seemed to me by Jim's voice, and I guess I'm reading, you know, obviously reading things, but you were sitting there with him. I felt like a real disappointment or something that happened to Jim at that moment. Is that, do you think so? I think there was a few disappointments. It was that. I think it was ultimately that he was doing this research and interview and it was cut off because of this murder we'll get to later, you know, Tyner. He had a lot of expectations that maybe, you know, some were unmet. So, but, but I'm sure that was a big part of it is, you know, you, and maybe, you know, you feel like you can befriend somebody of this nature mm -hmm. and, and then you end up, you know, getting duped or misled or whatever it is. You know, I was thinking back, Matt and Seton, to would I have fallen for this or believed right. it? But, but you just don't know. First of all, we're talking about back in the 1970s. I mean, times were different back there. Mm -hmm. You know, social media was different. Uh, the way of life was different. And when you get in a room, you guys know, sometimes you meet people and they're so endearing yeah. or uh, charming, charming, great word, exactly, that you, you fall for those spells as well. So you don't really know until you get, sit in Jim's seat. And so I love that we were able to sit in his seat through his experience and kind of say, you know, you could say what you would have done, but you don't know. I want to know about the story because Pee Wee would call their home, I think, every Sunday but tell me Correct. a story about the hat, the story behind it and its arrival. Yeah, so Christian was one of Jim's sons who would answer the phone and form some type of uh, small bond through these telephone, ca telephone calls on Sunday morning. And I think because Pee Wee got to know Christian a little bit and because he, you know, kind of liked the young man, at some point he made him this bizarre, and I've got a picture of it somewhere I oh, can really? send you guys, because, oh my goodness, Matt and Seton, when you see this hat, and when you see it on Jim's head, it'll freak you out. But anyway, he made this hat, I assume, like in crafts of the 
prison and send it to Christian as a gift. And describe it. Kind of hard to describe, but yeah. It has I mean, horns though, right? Blue, I mean, it has horns. It has horns, it's blue jeans. I mean, it's it's got a, a few different kinds of materials. It It almost looks devilish in some senses, but like, uh, what's the right word? But Goofy? <laughs> goofy devilish. That's a great description. Kind of goofy devilish. Because it has like um, red on the on the horns that look like blood or something. And it just... Correct. Uh, a, a bizarre... I mean, I don't even want to say cultish because that's the wrong word, but goofy devilish is a good description, I would say. It's okay. also very bizarre that your children are getting gifts from a mass murderer. Oh. Without a doubt. And that's another thing I was like, there's no way I would allow my kids to get on the phone. But again, I mean, think about back then. Yeah. You, you have to do it by collect call and your kid's going to answer the phone because it's not cell phones. I mean, that's what happened on a Sunday morning back in South Carolina in the mid 70s. Somebody answered the phone and then maybe Christian answered the phone and, you know, Jim's in the office and, and Pee Wee just starts up a conversation and Jim's into it. And so I, I don't know. I mean, it's yeah. it's still crazy to think, but. You just got to understand times were different and, and things were different back then. So Pee Wee was not, uh, he was, I guess, afraid would be the right word of actually getting the death penalty. So he was wheeling and dealing throughout the years. What was the big break? Was it the missing girl that started them to find the bodies and to get Pee Wee? Can you explain that? What set it off? Yeah, Kim Gelkins was definitely a big part of that because. There was other missing bodies and things that were happening before and maybe even during. But once they fell, found Kim Gelkin's body, I think it was around November of 76. Uh, it was a mile from the Gaskins uh, home in Prospect. Like it was a grave site near like Roper's Crossroads. But anyway, once they found that body, that particular case and body, that missing girl that set everything off. It was interesting that the teacher was the one who reported her missing. I know. It was yeah, sad. It was... And first, they, they wouldn't allow the teacher to report it because they said it had to come from a family member. And sad that it would took a teacher to report this young girl missing. She was 13, Kim Gelkins. Yeah, she was 13 years old. Correct. And so when they look for her, that's when they find the other bodies, right? Yes. Well, so, so Kim goes missing for a while, and there's been some reports of, again, other people that, that Pee Wee had killed as well. But once they start looking for Kim, that kind of opens up the search, and then ultimately it leads to other bodies as well with the help of Walter Neely. Pee Wee Gaskin's arresting is weird because they, they get him with the delinquency of the girl before they can prove things. And then we'll talk Correct. about it on down the road. That is, the murder that he commits is... Probably the least offensive, if you want to say it that way, out of all the things he does, is the one that gets him the death penalty. One thing I want to touch on is how we, I mentioned how Pee Wee was afraid of death penalty. So he would do all kinds of wheeling and dealing and sometimes lying. But he worked out, he got conjugal visits at one point, right? What? Yes, yes, he did. And I think he got conjugal visits based on the fact that he was willing to give up some bodies that they were looking for. So it's like, okay, I'm caught, but maybe in the middle of this, um, I'll be able to get conjugal visits. The, the lady was uh, Donna Carullo. I think it was the North Charleston Police Department that helped him. But but basically, he, he used that, Matt and Seaton, yeah. the conjugal, to, as, as kind of like, hey, if you do, if you allow this, then I will tell you where some of these other bodies are. I mean, he always had a card to play. That's, he did it twice. He got two two-hour visits yes. 
with this woman. Is that his sixth wife? I can't remember how many. It, definitely close to five or six. I know he was and sometimes seen married at the same time. So, you know, don't forget that it may not be six different marriages that did cross. <laughs> what, I don't know who he was talking to, but he commented that in South Carolina, you don't get divorced. You just get another marriage license. Correct. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's a good way to. And again, I mean, you know, when you're talking small town areas and obviously there there's a lot of stuff within this circle in this community. I mean, he again, I, I mean, I call him a trailer park kingpin. I mean, you know, you're just kind of running the roost. And then and don't forget, you know, he's dealing with a bunch of carnival workers as well. You know, these transient group right. of people that are sometimes homeless, moving from place to place with no real where to land. I mean, so people that can get lost in the world without anybody knowing about it. That's important. Take a little break and uh, get you ready for some traveling you've got coming up, some international trip where you want to be able to at least get around, right? So you want to learn the language of the country that you're going to. You want to experience it with a little bit of knowledge going in. And you can get a lot of bit of knowledge when you use Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program. It's available on desktop. It can also be used as an app on your phone or tablet. And Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion. It's instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals. You read stories, you participate in dialogues, so you are ready to go. It's the most trusted, time-tested app out there. They've been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Buy Rosetta Stone now, and you never have to pay a renewal fee. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Impact of Influence listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 40% off. That's 40% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 40% off at rosettastone.com backslash today. Let's talk about one of our sponsors. It is Factor. You can eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh meal is never frozen and it is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, and they are ready in just two minutes. What did you have chili the other day? Delicious. And if you want gourmet meals, you can try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, asparagus. So head to factormeals.com slash impact50 and use code impact 550 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That codes impact50 at factormeals.com slash impact50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Impact 50 at factormeals.com slash impact 50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding expectations, simplifying lives, and establishing legacies that last for generations. Leverage their exclusive network of experts to help achieve your personal and professional financial goals. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect to a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. He was a raging racist. There's no 
question about that. And that led to some of the murders. I think the most, one of the most horrific is the woman and the baby. Explain what happened there. Yeah, so Doreen Dempsey and Robin Dempsey. And again, there's some different ideas about how this all went down about his motivation, but I, I feel the racism was a huge part of it. And because Doreen had slept with somebody that was not her race and had a biracial baby, Pee Wee felt, hey, you've got to go and, and your baby shouldn't grow up in this world as well. And how'd he kill him? Well, he drowned the baby. And Jeez. I think Doreen. I think he poisoned her. Well, though, the one that he poisoned, I think, was the one that possibly gave drugs to his. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, which was, that was Clyde and Dix, if I'm not mistaken. But this is weird. Like, for a while, he was killing with bare hands. Correct. Uh, poison, acid, right? That he'd throw acid on somebody. Yeah, there was somebody that had acid in their Coke, and I think that's the one that we were talking about, okay. which was Clyde and Dix. What was the other way that he killed somebody? Was it like a, a knife? Oh, somebody. Oh, he, oh, yeah. So that's important. Yes. So Pee Wee definitely used the boning knife that he got from the Campbell Soup. Uh, Campbell Soup. That's right. Yeah, where he, he worked. Yes. Making so chicken used, pot pies. Yeah. So he used this as like, and so obviously, and I've looked at it, you know, it's, it's got a it's fairly thin, slim blade, it looks like, but kind of curved, very sharp. And he would definitely use that as one of his weapons of choice. He shot people as well. Obviously, he poisoned, drowned. It looks like he just went through about every form of killing, if you if you go back and think about it. And this guy's like 5'1 or something, right? 5'1", 5'2", but strong as an ox. And again, I remember Jim telling this one story about how he would repeatedly use the side of his hand and chop it on a metal bar within yeah. the prison to make his karate chop extremely strong like a weapon and so and then from other stories where he could lift large amount of weight like over his head so so this guy wasn't weak at all he said at one point that he killed somebody by karate chopping their windpipe but we don't know that's, that's what true, that's, but. What he, that's what he said yes let me tell one quick story which yeah do it i, I just always love so if not the first time where jim and Wee are alone then definitely one of the first few times Jim is in there interviewing Pee-wee and notices that Pee-wee's thumbnails are sharpened to what looks wow. like razor points. Jeez. And so Pee-wee notices Jim noticing these thumbnails and says, you're looking at my thumbnails, aren't you? And he's like, yeah, what do you got that for? And he basically reaches across the table and puts the thumbnails near Jim's eye sockets and says, I can use these as a weapon if a guard or anybody mistreats me or tries to hurt me. And so the fact that these hands got on Jim's face and these nails were pointed right in his eyes and could have plucked them out right at the moment, and the fact that Jim went back for more (laughs) interviews after that, it's just just crazy. That's crazy because I would have... Gone out and never, never entered. Come back. Never gone back. Seaton, you and I would have been out of there. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah, hell yeah. How's Peggy Cutno come into play? Peggy Cutno, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't she the daughter of like a senator? Yes. Okay, good. Yes. Okay. So that one, in, in our research and opinion, was one that he claimed to have taken uh, responsibility for, but that he did not 
ultimately kill. And he was obviously using some of this flash and stories to get off on certain things or to get leniency in other areas. But in our research, and again, from other people's as well, he was not responsible for Peggy Cutno's death. Well, and Peggy Cutno was big news because she was the oh, daughter yeah. of a, was a senator? Yeah, a state so. senator. Absolutely. So obviously that was going to be pretty high profile if a state senator's child is missing. Correct. But we don't think that Pee Wee killed her. Somebody else killed her. We, I, think, I, right? we don't think so. Again, right. there's some people that do, but we don't believe so at all. And on the podcast, we've got people disputing that and why. But that would be kind of go along with him trying to kind of inflate things because he likes to, I mean, I think he wanted to go down in, in infamy and wanted to be uh, notorious. Without a doubt. See, and again, don't forget, this is a guy that said he's going to lie half the time. And that was just a gym. To other people, maybe that percentage goes way up. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> maybe he just felt for something like Jim, like for you, <laughs> hey, I'll give you, you know, some of the truth here. The one that gets him, the one that gets him on death row is he kills a fellow inmate. Explain what happened there. And this is where Dick Harputlian enters the picture as well. Correct. And before we get to that, because yeah. this is important, and I, and I hope I'm saying this correctly, but back then you had to have two separate trials, I think, for sentencing and conviction. And yes. something happened where they tried to do it maybe all at once, like give him the death sentence while he was obviously convicted of these murders. And you weren't allowed to do that. They, did, they, they had to have a separate trial. So Pee Wee was never on death row because of that until this Tyner case. So that's important to understand. Okay. And also that there was one. a federal, there was federal laws about the death penalty that changed the way South Carolina could do things. Correct. Uh, that right. is absolutely correct. So he was and never, so, I mean, he killed however many people, 14 or whatever at that time. And he's not on death row. And South Carolina was more than happy to post people back then. Correct. Um, now, they, I think they called Tyner, it Old Sparky. Yeah. Old Sparky, yeah. Now, I think, uh, Matt and Seton, Tyner was on death row when mm -hmm. this happened. And so I'll tell this story. So Rudolph Tyner was a young black man who killed a white couple that owned like a gas convenience store, very loving uh, community family people that everybody was just so upset that this happened. And so Tyner is convicted, goes on death row. And Tony Simo is the son of the moons. Nice. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Of the moons and the, the couple that was killed and Ultimately, through one of his connections and some people that he knows, he connects with Pee Wee Gaskins so that Pee Wee can put a hit on Tyner while Tyner is in prison because Tony Sima was so fed up with the justice system and how many times Tyner was getting off and that the death penalty may go on for years and that it was just eating him alive. So he was able to instigate and connect with Pee Wee on the scheme to assassinate Rudolf Tyner in prison. He was communicating with Pee Wee on jailhouse phone. Which they had on tape, by the way. Yes. Oh, so that's another thing. So they found those tapes, and ultimately that and some other evidence is what helps convict Pee Wee. Great point, Seton. Very good point. Yes. And, and, and on the podcast, we have some of those uh, conversations that you can hear, if I'm not mistaken. He, he blew this guy up and uh, with... Out knowing it, Jim Beatty, who we've mentioned, had some part in that. Explain. 
So the plan was to make this bomb, and ultimately it was a radio bomb. So the ruse was he was going to get one guy smuggled some C4, if I'm not mistaken, in like the his boot into the prison. Some other parts, obviously, he may have gotten from being a what's the term? He was a prison warden. Thank you. Good job. Yeah, the prison board. So he basically, you know, he had this free reign to like walk around and do things and access to like maybe the steel what? shop and the carpentry shop and and back then just wherever he wanted to go. So with that, sure. with the C4, and he asked Jim Beatty if Jim would mail him a 50-foot TV or antenna wire so that he could, with his friends in prison, watch some sports on TV. And he needed that wire to be able to get the reception working well. And so that that wire comes into prison and with all of those combined tools and resources, he makes this radio bomb where again, he can, with this wire, go into Signer's cell. He can have him put it up to his ear. And then once he does that, he sets off some device and boom, he blows Tyner's head off. How did you ever talk to Jim about how he felt about being duped into this? I did. And there was many different aspects to that I think that he struggled with. One that he didn't really think maybe about, you know, what this wire could be used for, knowing who he was speaking with, which was Pee Wee Gaskin, this mass murderer. Two, that again, he felt he had this kind of rapport with Pee Wee. And so could Pee-wee really involve me in something like that? Or is Pee-wee even still capable of doing something like this, hoping again that there may be some redemptive quality in there? So I think on top of that, you got to understand Jim is a Christian man with deep moral values. And the fact that even in the slightest way, not his fault, not knowing at all, that something, some action he did led to the death of somebody else can obviously be troubling. And that was the last time he got, he didn't get to see Pee Wee after that, right? That was it. It was all shut down. His book is shut down. His communication is shut down. His feeling of redemption for Pee Wee is shut down. It's all closed uh, in, one, and, in one fatal bombing. And you can listen to the podcast to find out what happened with the guy who hooked up with Pee Wee Gaskins and had the murder plan for hire. I'll let, I'll, I'll tease him a little bit for that to find out. Yeah. There's a lot more aspects to the story. Uh, Pee Wee Gaskins was not my friend. You can get it on all uh, platforms, Spotify, Apple, and uh, definitely some very insightful stories and different relationships that we dive into besides obviously going into these murders of Pee Wee Gaskins. But the real kind of story is the relationship between Pee Wee and Jim. Another relationship is the relationship with the Pee Wee Gaskin story and our podcast and the fact that Alec Murdoch's attorney, Dick Harputlian, was a solicitor who put Pee Wee Gaskins on death row after Pee Wee committed that murder while in prison. And the Satterfield family attorney, Eric Bland, mentioned Pee Wee and Dick Harpootlian did as well in a uh, one of the documents that came out. Explain what this is about. So back in November, Dick Harpootlian filed a request for a gag order against Bland. And in this 
document, he says that Mr. Bland referred to his client, Alec, as Pee Wee Gaskins and another serial killer. Um, and, you know, obviously there's a big difference between a serial killer or mass murderer than a, than a white-collar criminal. Which is all Alec has been arrested for so far. So now back to Pee Wee Gaskins. Uh, there was also a situation after he was put on death row by Dick Harpootland where Dick Harpootland's family was threatened. And Jeff spoke to Dick Harpootlian on his podcast, Pee Wee Gaskins Was Not My Friend. This is from that podcast with Dick Harpootlian explaining to Jeff the whole threat. One day, Dick was reminded of Pee Wee's incredible audacity. I'm playing golf, and I get a call from Chief Stewart chief of sweat and said where are you and i said i'm playing golf he said and where's your daughter and i did not like the sound of that he said we think there's a plot maybe to kidnap her we'll send sweat agents there and she was at home so by the time i got home we had sweat agents there the story came out that peewee had met with his son little donnie and that donnie had gone to a friend of his and says his dad said to kidnap the solicitor's daughter or the, the governor's son, and that he intended on kidnapping the Swister daughter, who was four years old, and he needed this young man to help him do it. And he told the young man that his dad's, he asked his dad, what if he won't, if I kidnap her and he won't do what you want him to do, what do I do? And he said, well, he should keep her in a trunk, and if he won't do it, kill her. What he was supposed to do was tell me to have Pee Wee brought up to my office in the courthouse. And this is the chilling part. Kiwi knew somehow that I had a back door to my office, that if I told the sweat agents to bring him into my office and leave, they didn't know the door was there. They would leave and he could just go out the back door. I mean, I don't know how he, nobody knew that. So uh, the kid went, his son went and talked to another kid. That that kid immediately went to Sheriff Barnes, thank God. And so they locked there. She was fine. My wife was fine. And they had warrants out for Donnie for car theft or something. So they arrested him and took him into custody. That had to be scary. And that is, again, Dick Carpootlian, Alec Murdoch's attorney, talking with Jeff Keating uh, on the podcast, Pee Wee Gaskins Was Not My Friend. Great podcast, Jeff. And you did the interview with Dick Carpootlian and a bunch of other people involved in this case. How did the whole podcast come about? Yeah, so I had a colleague, a friend of mine, who brought the story to me and knew the Beatty family. And the... Jim had written this manuscript, uh, which he ultimately finished. It's the same one that we're talking about, but he kind of did it in, in a novel form. And I think he'd always wanted to tell this story. And so when we met, I kind of gave him my thoughts on how this would uh, play out creatively. And we just kind of had a good rapport and hit it off with each other. And soon we were off and running. Everybody else, um, Courtney DeFries is one of the executive producers on the podcast, and he did an excellent job of interviewing some of these people as well. So we both kind of found a lot of people. The only thing people were hesitant about is sometimes there were some names or businesses or things that they didn't want to talk about because, you know, they were just trying to be protective. But everybody was fairly open. I, I was obviously pleasantly surprised. Dick does a great job on the podcast just kind of uh, talking about his uh, participation as the solicitor and his take on Pee Wee. There's some other funny stories we didn't get to, but I, I, I got to say, I'm obviously impressed, looking forward to following more of your podcast, you and Seton. 
Uh, the story that you're covering is fascinating. Where, where by the way, uh, we're not at trial yet in that uh, particular case, are we? Or are we already at no. trial? No, no, we are. Yeah. Uh, it, and right now we still, what we're hoping for is something to happen with who killed uh, Maggie and Paul. Uh, that's the big thing that needs to be rectified. The white collar crimes is horrible. A lot of victims there. That's all terrible, of course, obviously. And there's uh, some other cold cases that are tied to it. We know Stephen Smith, that, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a one. And there's also was a boating accident that is... Yeah. So we're waiting. To- yes, I, I do remember that one as well. Well, again, I'm, I'm th- this case is it got national publicity and I'm uh, eager to kind of catch up with where you guys are. And I appreciate you guys reaching out to me. I, I definitely see the tie specifically with Dick Arputlian. Uh, and, and just again, Seton, the fact that we've got two stories from South Carolina, you know, which are each state has its own uh, bizarre history and stories to tell. And these two are definitely some of them, right? For sure. And Seton and I noticed that we started, you started, I think, June of last year, right? And we did, and that's when we started ours. Uh, yeah, we, we uh, May actually is when right. I think our first one was was published. And, and so, yeah, very, uh, right around the same time. Now, again, we, we did about a year's worth of production leading up, you know, tons oh, yeah. of interviews and research and stuff like that. You kind of, uh, you guys were doing things on the fly in some yeah, ways. Yeah, we still are yeah. doing it. Yeah. You, we were definitely a learning curve. The learning curve was true. If you are a true crime fan as I am, this is definitely a great podcast to listen to. PB Gaskins was not my friend, I heart, and you can get it through all the usuals. Jeff Keating, thank you very much for hanging out with us, man. I appreciate it. Thank you, Matt and Seaton. I really appreciate it as well, and I uh, look forward to catching up in the future. All right. Hope you enjoyed the bonus episode, and reach out to us with thoughts or comments. We're always so grateful that you listen to this podcast. It means a lot to us. It means a lot when you reach out. Murdoch Podcast on Facebook and MurdochPodcast.com. We'll talk soon. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia... Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal.